have your copy of God's Word this morning. We're in the book of Luke chapter 22. Book of Luke chapter 22. We're going to start at verse 39 and we're going to go through verse 71 of Luke 22. We're going to start this series um, called Jesus Is. Um, over the next few weeks, we're going to be walking uh, through that uh, theme. This morning, we will look at Jesus Is the rejected Savior. Luke 22, 39 through 71. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version this morning. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down on the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. And while he was still speaking, there came a crowd and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servants of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. And then Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and the elders who had come out against him, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. Then they seized him. They led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house, and Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. And then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man was also with him, but he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them. But Peter said, man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted saying, certainly this man was also with him for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, Prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. And when day came, the assembly of elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes. And they led him away to their council. And they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And so they said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. And then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. According to psychology today, the fear of rejection is one of the deepest fears that people have. The reason that we are afraid of rejection is that we are wired with a yearning. We want to belong and we have this fear of not belonging. The fear of rejection is a fear that nearly everyone has in common. It doesn't matter whether you're a man or a woman or a child. You've probably felt the fear of rejection in your life. And as a child, it could be trying out for a part or a team or just not being accepted by others as adults. It could be a job interview or a position that you really want. I know 
of at least one job where you have to be able to overcome your fear of rejection. And that is the job of being a telemarketer because they get rejected all day long. But let me say this. It seems that rejection affirms our worst fears. And that is that we are unlovable or undesirable and that we are destined to be alone or that we have little worth or value to anyone. And why do we have this fear? Because we have a desire to belong. We want to avoid feeling like a failure. Nobody says, goes through life saying, I just want to be a failure. No one wants to be rejected by social groups. No one wants to be cast off by others. And if you have ever felt that, it hurts. If you've ever felt like you did not belong for one reason or another, or that a group just did not want to let you be a part of their cool little group, it cuts you pretty deep. And so fear begins to grow in your heart. And we shrink back because we are so afraid of being rejected. But here's what most of us already know. Rejection is just a part of life. We've all been rejected at various times in our lives, some of us more than others, but think about it. This is, is just a part of life. But what if rejection could be different? What if in our rejection there was actually blessing? We all know that all of our desires are not good for us. The fact is, we all have some pretty unhealthy desires in our lives. If we were to get everything we desired, many of us would be ruined. Have you ever come across an adult where you could tell they were spoiled as a child and they got everything they wanted? Children that are spoiled little brats often grow up to be spoiled big brats. That know little of generosity... And to experience rejection certainly could have done them some good. Let me give you some quick info about our text this morning. Jesus has celebrated the Last Supper. He's with his disciples. He leaves the upper room and Luke says he comes to the Mount of Olives. So that is the first location that we're going to look at. And then on down in verse 54, we see that Jesus is led to the house of the high priest who is Caiaphas, and we have a total of five scenes focused around the betrayal of Jesus. We have this scene in the garden where Jesus is praying before he's betrayed, and then we see this deception begins as Judas betrays him with a kiss, and then we have Peter betraying him with his denial three times, and then we have the soldiers mocking and beating him, and finally we have the priests and the scribes condemning him. You see, everyone that's around Jesus rejects him. But that's the beauty of it. The Lord accepts complete rejection so that sinners by faith in Christ might receive complete acceptance. So first we see this idea that Jesus experienced rejection of the Father. In Luke chapter 22, verses 1 through 38, Jesus has had the Last Supper with his disciples and he's eating with them. And two things are revealed to us as he's doing that. First, that he is the Passover lamb who takes away the sin of the world. And secondly, that Judas will betray him. In verse 39, supper is finished and they've left the upper room where they had the meal. And Jesus heads to the Mount of Olives, which is common practice for him. And the disciples go with him. On this particular night... Jesus is focused on prayer and he instructs the disciples twice that they need to take time to pray. Pray for what? That they would not enter temptation. Now that's interesting because in the matter of a few hours, Jesus will go to the cross, but he doesn't ask them. He doesn't say to the disciples, hey disciples, uh, in a few hours, I'm going to be going to the cross and I need you to pray for me. He says, that they need to pray that they will not enter into temptation. 
Jesus is making it clear that he is not the only one that is in danger that night because the disciples are going to face threats from within their ranks. Now let's look at Jesus' prayer. Jesus gets alone with God the Father and look at what he prays for. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. The other gospels tell us that three times Jesus prayed this very prayer. Father, if you're willing. Father, if you're willing. Father, if you are willing. And instead of finding comfort and peace in his prayer, Jesus experienced something else. We're told that this time of prayer is so intense that an angel has to come from heaven to strengthen the Lord Jesus as he's in agony and he sweats drops of blood. Now what is it that Jesus is asking for? He's asking for the cup to be removed. What does that even mean? Well, two things. First, the cup refers to the cup of God's wrath. Jesus is not in agony because he's afraid of pain or death. He's spoken of the crucifixion before. He's in agony because of this cup that he mentions. In the Old Testament, the prophets of Israel sometimes spoke of God's wrath and judgment against sin as a cup that the wicked were required to drink. Listen, the cup here is symbolic of saving sinners from their sins. The Lord Jesus must drink the cup and suffer God's wrath in our place. The cup is symbolic, representing the fury and anger and punishment of God. To put it simply, the cup that Jesus prays about is full of God's perfect and holy hatred for sin. And Jesus knew this. This is why he came to the world. And here on the Mount of Olives, Jesus begins to taste what is in that cup, undiluted by the mercy of God. He begins to experience what it will take for him to go to the cross and to save his people. And now, that's a beautiful picture for you and I. How is it that as Christians... We can glory in something so disgusting as a man on a cross. Because Jesus also drinks the cup of God's salvation. You see the wrath of God being poured out on Jesus Christ results in our rescue from condemnation and hell. What we have is a beautiful picture of our Lord's love for us. Jesus' love for the Father and for us was so great that Jesus willingly went to the cross knowing what he would experience there. In this agonizing scene in the garden, God the Father did something that had never happened between the Father and the Son ever. The Father rejected his own Son. Three times he prayed, the cup passed from me. Father, if you're willing, let this cup pass from me. And every time the Father returned a silent no from heaven. Oh, how beautiful the picture. The prayer that saves sinners like you and I is a prayer that was denied by the Father. Do you get that? The Father said no to Jesus so that he could say yes to us. We sometimes get so caught up in our prayer for the will of God that we think the only way his will can be done is that if he says yes to our request. Because it's what we want and not what God wants. God's plan here was accomplished through the Son by denying the, son, by denying the cup passed from the Son. God the Father to His only Son said no because the Son had to drink the cup of wrath in order for us to possibly drink the cup of salvation. Our greatest deliverance in all of humanity came because the Father said no. Please understand that Jesus was willing to suffer the horror the dread for our salvation. He chose to drink the bitter cup that our sin deserves. 
And if we understand Gethsemane at all, it means that Jesus loves us even more than we can possibly imagine. It's not just that Jesus died for us, but that he died a horrible, damnable, God-forsaking death that no one would ever want to die. We have this picture like, oh, Jesus died for Jesus died for us. But picture everything that Jesus went through. He died this death because there was no other way for sinners to be saved. There's no easier road to redemption. There's no alternative to the cross. He died that death so we might be saved. Now quickly, I want us to see that through this scene of prayer, we can learn so much about prayer in our own lives. First, prayer gives protection against temptation. Prayer gives protection against temptation. The Lord Jesus gives instruction for them to pray for the specific reason that they would not enter into temptation. We must pray because we are faced with temptation every single day. We have this onslaught from the world, our own sinful flesh, and Satan comes against us. Pray against temptation, not after you sin, but before you ever enter into temptation that we are supposed to pray. Secondly, prayer is done in submission to the will of the Father. Jesus prays, not my will, but your will be done. This is the test to know whether we are praying in complete trust in God or we think our way is the best. Can you conclude your prayer by saying, God, your will be done. Prayer is not done to bring God in line with us. We have this faulty picture like, like I'm going to pray to somehow bring God in submission to me, to my plan. But prayer is my submission to God's plan and his will. Thirdly, prayer is always answered, even if it's no. Can you welcome the no just like you do the yes? Are you praying only for a yes, thinking that, you, that that must be God's plan? Because sometimes his plan is to take a no and do more with a no than you could ever dream of. God is infinitely good. So even in his no, it will always be for our good and for his glory. If God withholds something, it's better than if we receive it. Even though we may not understand it, we must trust it. Fourthly, God's no does not mean that God has abandoned us. Just because he says no does not mean that he has abandoned us. Look at how the angels came and ministered to the Lord by strengthening him. Just because the father did not grant the son's request does not mean that he was no longer with him in the garden. Do not be tempted to think that silence or a no is God abandoning you. God is present with us just as he has promised. Fifthly, God's no does not mean a bad outcome. There are times when our prayers are not answered and we quickly lose hope. I've done that in my own life. Here the Lord pleads, but the answer is no. The cup will not pass from him, but on the other side of that, no is our redemption. It's not a bad outcome. It's the greatest outcome ever known to humanity. Jesus Christ, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. On the other side of the cross is our salvation. A no does not mean a bad outcome. Number six, prayer requires effort and self-denial. Prayer requires effort and self-denial. The disciples were tired. They found it difficult to pray. They fall asleep here. But prayer is warfare. Prayer is going to battle against the enemy of our flesh. We must not allow our flesh to win when it comes to prayer. We must wage war against our flesh and rely on the Spirit in prayer. We must deny ourselves 
looked to the Savior in the Garden of Gethsemane on his knees, sweating drops of blood and hearing a no from his Father. Oh, the beauty that in his rejection is our salvation, that we can be rescued from our sins, that Jesus endured our punishment. He endured our shame. He removed our guilt and our combination and he suffered on the cross. And three days later, God would raise him from the dead, proving that his wrath was satisfied and that his sacrifice was accepted and that we are justified in faith through him. Trust in Jesus and follow him and he will make you new. Jesus was rejected by the Father. But Jesus was also rejected by Judas. Right in the middle of Jesus calling the disciples to pray, Judas comes in, leading a crowd against Jesus. Verse 6 tells us that Judas had agreed with the leaders to look for a time where he could secretly betray the Lord. The betrayal by Judas was dependent on Judas abusing his close relationship with Jesus. First, let's look at the treacherous betrayal. Judas uses his membership among the disciples to betray Jesus. If we look at verse 47, we will notice that he is called one of the twelve. That is what makes this treachery so despicable. He was the inner circle amongst the closest friends. The disciples were the twelve men that Jesus chose to carry out his mission. And Judas exploits the trust. Judas would have intimate knowledge of the Lord's routine. He would have known uh, that the Lord liked to go to the Mount of Olives. He knew when the Lord would be there. In fact, Judas had been there with him many times. And he used that intimate knowledge to betray the Lord who wanted to murder him. If that's not enough, Judas betrays Jesus in the most intimate gesture you could think of. The kiss. Judas betrayed the Lord with a kiss after everything the Lord had done for him. The Lord was the one who called Judas to be his disciple after a full night in prayer. Judas was selected by the definite will of God and the deliberate decision of Jesus Christ. Jesus taught Judas. He was there when Jesus taught that we are to love our enemies and we are to bear good fruit and we are to build on the rock of obedience to Jesus Christ. Judas was there when Jesus told him the parable and was there when Jesus said to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. Judas was there when Jesus talked about counting the cost of following him. Judas was there to see all of the miracles even the ones that benefited Judas when Jesus by grace rescued the disciples in that boat. Judas was there. He was there when they were hungry and Jesus fed the 5,000. Judas was there when they went out and preached the gospel. He was divinely empowered to preach the gospel and to heal disease and to cast out demons. Over and over again, Jesus revealed to Judas that he was the Christ, the son of the living God. He would have heard Jesus say, I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men The Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. Jesus gave Judas every warning imaginable. Not to betray him. He even washed Judas's dirty feet. The very last words. Jesus would say to Judas... Were words in love. Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Jesus calls Judas by his personal name. Judas, Matthew tells us that that very night, he called Judas his friend. And as a friend, Jesus would call Judas one last time to repentance. Judas, are you going to betray me with a kiss? Jesus was not surprised by the betrayal. 
He was trying to get Judas to see what he's really doing. Judas, are you sure this is what you want to do? Judas, do you not see that I am the Son of God? Do you see what you are doing? You are betraying the cause of Christ. Right until the end. Jesus loves Judas. Seeks to keep him from ruin. As Alexander McLaren puts it, Jesus was betrayed by someone he loved. And with the gesture of a kiss, Judas rejects Jesus and his Lord and Savior. <clears throat> with a gesture that's meant to communicate intimacy and partnership, Judas communicates rejection and the breaking of fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let's notice the terrible violence. Notice the composure of the Lord during this whole ordeal. Look at verses 49 and 50. And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with a sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. I want you to picture this. Here comes Judas with these men. He betrays Jesus and the disciples say, should we fight? And before there's even an answer from, from anyone, the other gospels tell us that Peter chops off some dude's ear. He didn't even wait for an answer. Should we fight? Here's Peter. Wait, there goes your ear. He's the first to strike. <clears throat> the disciples see Jesus betrayed, and what do they want? They want revenge. Leon's Crump says this, If your first reaction in a scrape is to cut off a man's ear, then chances are you've done it before. Now here's the thing. There's a proper use of the sword, I believe, for self-defense against an unlawful aggressor, and that it's divinely approved as an authority in the hands of the state, which would include its lawful use by a legitimate army in the prosecution of a just war. I believe Scripture clearly tells us that. However, God's kingdom is neither accomplished nor is it advanced by violence. The disciples has, has asked before if they should call down fire from heaven. They said, Lord, should we call down fire from heaven and consume these Samaritans because they're rejecting you? And the Lord responded with, they did not know what spirit they were acting in. And look how the Lord responds to this. Oh, Peter chops off this guy's ear and he says, no more of this. He's even in control at all times, even to limiting the evil that is being done. And under his final rule and reign, there will be no more violence because he stands for what is good and what is right, even when it costs him his life. Not only does he stop and oppose the violence, but then he heals the victim of the violence. Right in the middle of what could have been a riot, the Lord picks up this guy's ear and puts it back on his head. Not just anyone's ear, but his enemy's ear. Now, I don't know about you, but I am thinking at this point, I would change my mind about arresting Jesus. Especially if I was the one who had my ear put back on my head. I don't care what happened or what's going on, but I'm switching to the side of this guy because he's obviously the good guy. But here's the thing. People do not always want to believe in God even when he does things for them. And in this case, a miracle, people will still reject Jesus. Finally, let's notice... The trembling cowardice. Listen, there's many reasons why people don't follow Christ. But one of them is cowardice. Since they've already committed to their own way of life. For their own plan. They're too afraid to change direction. So I'm going this direction. I'm not going to change and follow Christ. Look at verse 52 and 53. Jesus rebukes the cowardice of the chief priests, the elders, and the temple police. 
Jesus, the gentlest man ever to walk the face of this earth, and they come with this small army to get him. What cowards. And then Jesus says this, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. This is a reference to the moment when the betrayal of Jesus and his sacrifice are carried out. Those who opposed Jesus had joined forces with the power of darkness. However, here is the thing. They could not take Jesus before it was time. But at the appointed time, the Lord gave himself over to them to accomplish the Father's will. The power of darkness temporarily holds the upper hand. But notice it's limited for an hour. Literally, it's what he says. It's, it's a brief amount of time is what he's saying. And even then, it is conquered by Christ eventually. And it still serves God's purpose. Satan will soon think that he's conquered the Son of God. Only to realize, this is why I love about the cross. Satan thinks I've won. Only to realize he just helped complete God's plan. Even cowardice and darkness are made to do God's bidding. And so we see betrayal and Violence and cowardice surrounding Judas's betrayal of the Lord. Jesus suffered rejection at the hand of one of his close friends. And it should never be. It should never be amongst us either. All of our affections and our loyalty for Christ are to be genuine and true. And our loyalty and affections to one another are to also be genuine and true. I don't know if you've ever noticed it or not. But we live in a time where loyalty seems pretty rare we sell one another out pretty quickly in today's world and often we do it so we do it pretty cheap just like judas however among god's people it should never be so among those who are believers that see the betrayal of jesus we should never be so quick to betray one another but far too often that's not the case in church so let's see that jesus was rejected by the father Jesus was rejected by Judas, his close friend. Now let's see that Jesus experienced rejection by Peter. As we know, not once, but three times, Peter rejects the Lord. The temple guards have seized the Lord, led him away, and brought him unto the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. There's a lot of meaning just right there. The fact that Peter followed at a distance... He's gradually distancing himself from Jesus. Listen, we can't safely follow Jesus from a distance like so many of us try to do. We are meant to be close to Christ, not follow at a distance. The Lord had graciously warned Peter that Satan was looking to destroy him. And how does Peter respond? With confidence, of course, because it's Peter. He says, Jesus I'm ready to follow you to prison and even to death. Peter's like those guys that are, they talk real big, right? I'm not scared of prison. But remember what the Lord said to Peter. Peter, before the rooster crows, you will deny that you even know me three times. And so there the people are in the courtyard making a fire. They're going to be there a while and Peter sits among them. Now notice that Peter was following at a distance. He then finds himself standing in the courtyard. And now he finds himself sitting with them. Does that sound familiar? Let me read to you Psalm 1-1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. And this is where Peter will deny Jesus three times. First, it's the little servant girl. She looks at Peter, and she thinks she recognizes him. 
And when she's sure of it, she says, this man was with him too. Peter denies it. The verse makes it sound so indignant. Woman, I do not know him. What a lie, Peter told. Then an unnamed man who, who knew, who we know by someone else. How'd you like that to be your name in the Bible? Someone else. He sees Peter. All it took was for him to see Peter and he knew he was one of the Lord's followers. And he says, you're one of them too. And Peter denies it again. Man, I am not. And twice he could be loyal and twice Peter has failed. Twice Peter could claim Jesus as his Lord and instead Peter lies. And it's now about an hour later. Perhaps now Peter has begun to relax and let his guard down thinking, well, I'm not going to be bothered anymore. I've gotten away with my lies. Third man speaks up. This man was certainly with him since he's also a Galilean. This man not only recognizes Peter as a disciple, but connects Peter with the ministry of Jesus through Galilee. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you're talking about. The third denial and the words had no sooner left the mouth of Peter when immediately he was, while he was still speaking, it says, the rooster crows. Have you ever heard a terrifying sound? You hear it and this scares you. Typically it's not a rooster. But it was for Peter on that day. Heartbreaking. Look at verse 61. The Lord turned and looked at Peter. Doesn't even say a word. Because they're not necessary. Everything was said with their eyes. All they needed was a trans was transferred in a look. And when the Lord looked at Peter, Peter knew. He remembered what the Lord had said concerning the rooster. And then came the bitter tears of a man who had rejected his Lord. But what do we learn of ourselves in this? Well, for one, we should learn that we can't try to avoid looking like Christ's followers to please others. And somehow think that will in turn cause the Lord to look upon us with approval. In fact, Jesus' own words are that if we deny Him while on this earth, He will deny us in heaven before the Father. Some might say, well, well, what's the difference between Judas and Peter? The difference is significant because one denied Jesus out of wickedness, the other denied Him out of weakness. Judas intentionally and very literally sold out Jesus. Judas was a son of destruction. Judas was unrepentant and destined for condemnation. Peter, on the other hand, failed the Lord despite his commitment to the Lord. That is why the Lord restores Peter. Peter really was ready to die for Jesus. And he really did intend to stand with Jesus. But in the hour of darkness, Peter's courage failed. The difference between wickedness and weakness is tremendous. Wickedness gets condemnation. Weakness gets restoration. We should always make an accurate diagnosis of our failures and ask ourselves, are they coming from the wickedness in my heart or from weakness? Is our heart filled with sin and that's why we're doing what we're doing? Or is it because of weakness? The Lord will reject the wicked, but he will receive the weak. He says, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Christ knew Peter was weak. He knows that you and I are also weak. And when we are weak, he is strong. And when we're unable to stand in the hour of temptation, we must Run to Christ who defeats our temptations. Do not try to stand on your own strength because you will fall. Oh, may we discover the strong arms of God in the middle of our weakness because our weakness is simply an invitation to trust in the strength of the Lord Jesus Christ. We trust Him with that which we cannot trust ourselves. 
our very souls. Jesus experienced more rejection. Rejection by the mockers. The Lord was not rejected by his friends on that night. Not just rejected by his friends. Consider this rejection because it's not personal but physical. They beat the Lord. They mock him. The previous rejections were personal in nature. They betrayed the intimacy of the friendship. This rejection is personal in that it is an assault on the psychology and it attacks his very character. The goal is to discredit and disgrace Jesus. They're mocking the Lord as a prophet. A prophet was someone who brought the word of God to the people. The soldiers reject that Christ brings God's message. In fact, they use this opportunity to play a little game, have a little fun. So they blindfold him. They take turns hitting him. And they say, prophesy. Who was it that hit you? They thought they were real funny. They thought it was hilarious. But they didn't get the last laugh. Because by divine omniscience, he knew exactly who it was that was hitting him. He knew everything these men had ever done. And unless they're repentant, their laughter would turn to fear. As they stand before the final judgment, and Jesus gives out perfect justice. And he says, by the way, I know it was you that hit me. We read they're blaspheming him, meaning they were saying slanderous things about him and speaking against his person. I would guess these things being said were not even fit to write down. I wonder how many of us have blasphemed Jesus. We've used his name in vain. Or before we were believers, we rejected that he was the son of God. Or we've said things like this, if Jesus was real, then why doesn't he fill in the blank? We read this and we feel anger. You read about these guys blindfolding Jesus and punching him and saying, prophesy, and, and perhaps you, you feel anger. And we think these men deserve condemnation. And if they never repented, then they indeed received condemnation. But I want you to listen carefully because there's good news for sinners just like you and just like our, I are. There's good news for blasphemers just like you and I. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. But blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or the age to come. Our God forgives blasphemers because he willingly suffered blasphemy to save blasphemers only the lord jesus christ can be so full of love and mercy that he willingly makes a way for those who dishonor his very name to share in his honor maybe that is you you hear the promise, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. Through faith in the Son of God, by trust in Jesus as your Savior, there is forgiveness for the worst of sinners. The only rejection that is final is His rejection of us on the day of judgment. If you have not done so, then repent and trust in Jesus Christ before it's too late. Fifthly, Jesus experienced rejection by the priests. This is the last rejection we're going to look at this morning. And we notice that Jesus is rejected by the established religious leaders of the day. Now, according to verse 67, they wanted everyone to think that their main concern was whether or not Jesus was the Messiah. However, Jesus, as he likes to do, exposes that by saying that if he did tell them, they would still not believe. And the Lord is put on trial for who he claimed to be. 
Let me just say the hardest heart among men is the one that refuses all proof and reason. Just like these priests that already made up their mind. Jesus, there's no way Jesus was the Messiah. They were willfully blind and ignorant to, to what was right in front of them. It did not matter what he said. They were going to reject it. The heart that refuses to admit what it knows is the hardest heart of all. These men had hardened their heart in such a way that they, there is no way they were going to see that Jesus was the Messiah. Oh, but please know that the hardness of man's heart will never, ever be able to stop the advancement of God's plan. Look at verse 69. Despite their unbelief, the Lord will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Their unbelief doesn't stop the plan. In other words, Jesus is telling them that there is nothing that they can do that will stop God's plan from advancing and Jesus Christ reigning. Now look at verse 70. Because of what Jesus said, they respond with, Are you then the Son of God? They asked this because they knew the title, the Son of Man, was taken from Daniel chapter 7 when he says that. And it was a reference to deity. And the Lord uses their own words. You say that I am. And then we have the final rejection. They don't need any more testimony because they've heard it from the lips of Jesus. He claims to be deity. All the irony is so thick in verse 71. What further testimony do we need? If only the priests would have answered their own question differently. Question comes to us, what further testimony do we need? We've heard it from Jesus. What more do we need? Larry King once said that he would like to interview Jesus more than anyone else. And he would ask him one question. Were you really born of a virgin? But what further testimony do you need? The Old and the New Testament have made this truth so plain. Listen, it's easy to reject Jesus, claiming that you somehow need more. But the truth is, many hide behind what they don't know because they're avoiding what they really do know. I was on a mission trip over in El Salvador once, and a lady came to the church that, that we were staying with and, and helping out, and she says, I need someone to come and talk to my husband because he just keeps asking all these theological questions and I need someone to come talk to him and I'm kind of arrogant sometimes and and I know I shouldn't be and I'm like well I'll go talk to him and I go over there and this guy is rifling question after question after question after question after question and I stand there and through a translator I answer every single question he gives me every single one and I watch him as he sits there and contemplates, as I give him the answer, and I give him the answer, and I give him the answer, and he just thinks and thinks, and I get to the end. I said, I've answered every single question you've asked me. Are you ready to surrender your life to Jesus Christ? No. No. He didn't need to know more. He avoided what he already knew. They knew Jesus claimed to be the Son of God. They knew Jesus had done numerous miracles to prove it. They just refused to follow the evidence. They wanted something. Anything that they could use to confirm the rejection of Jesus and they're just like so many today. Not truly looking for any evidence, but looking for reasons to reject him. What about you this morning? Will you reject him or receive him?
Are you pretending like you need more information? Or will you be honest with yourself and with Jesus? Because there is more than enough information and testimony to know the truth. What further testimony do you need? I ask you this morning, have you rejected Jesus? Believe in him and trust in Christ for salvation. If you receive Christ, he will receive you. But if you reject him, he will reject you. God gave his son into the hands of angry sinners to be rejected, to be despised for our sin. He did it all for us. Do you realize the awfulness of your own sin? Do you realize just how sinful you really are? And do you weep at its reality that you are a sinner against a holy God? We've sinned against an infinitely holy God and the Lord knows it. He knows our hearts. He knows the very thoughts that I have. And have you trusted in Christ as your Savior, as your only hope? If you have, been, if you have trusted, then glory in this thought that even though Jesus knows our sin, even though Jesus knows my sin, every single one, and there's some nasty stuff there, he still loved me enough that he chose to die for me. Will I not live for him? Oh, dear Christian, will you not live for him? The filthy, dirty sin that we committed, he says, it's mine. It's mine. Will we not live for him? Oh, dear Christian, take comfort in your difficulties. Knowing that Jesus has faced far worse, and yet he remained truthful and loyal. Will you pray with me?